in John chapter 7. We're going to be looking specifically at verses uh, 37 through 52. Over the last few weeks, we've been uh, really walking with Jesus through this, uh, through his time leading up to and his time at the Jewish festival called the, the Feast of, of Booths. And, and, and while we're only seven chapters into the Gospel of John, the, the reality is that in the timeline of this Gospel, we're within the last six months of Jesus's life. Uh, John spends a great deal of time on the really just the last week of his life. And so what we're at now is we're at that point um, in this section where, where we've reached the end. And, and so we're going to see a conclusion here of this time at the feast. And so I just want to jump in uh, this week. So would you stand with me and, uh, and, and join with me as we look at the word of God together? We stand uh, because this is the word of our Lord, as, as Eric just prayed a few moments ago, because this is our foundation. This is, this is it. This is the only authority uh, that we really have in, in, in life and in faith. So uh, this is John 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I'll confess that I, I have come into this building this morning. I've come among your people with distractions in my heart and mind. I've, I've come in here um, tempted by, by the things of this world, Lord. I've been, I've been tempted to use my time selfishly. I've been tempted to use your resources selfishly. I, I, I confess that to you, and I ask you now to come and work in spite of me, in spite of us. Lord, I pray that you would come and, and clear our minds for a few moments here that you would come because we need you to come, and that you would open our eyes, that we might see you, that you would unstop our ears, that we might hear from you. And Lord, I pray that you would come and awaken our souls this morning to draw near to you, that you would speak to us, that you would give us your message. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we've been... uh, working our way 
through this gospel over the last few months, one of the things that I've been struck by is just the reality. And, and this isn't like earth-shattering news or anything. Like, Man, that guy's really perceptive. That's really not what's about to happen. But what has struck me is the fact that just things in this world are not the way that they are supposed to be. And, and I just want to be straight about this. I mean, we see this all around us. We see it everywhere. Just a cursory glance at the current uh, political, uh, the current social, the current ethical climate that we find ourselves in, make it re- really clear uh, that the world is, is not the way that it's supposed to be. It's in a state of constant division. By the way, I don't believe this is a new phenomenon. I know that's, that's kind of what we tend to think, that we have now at some point, we, we've, we've grown to reach the, just the worst uh, uh, of humanity. But I, I really believe that... that I just think it's louder now than maybe it's been in the past. It's, it's just, it's inescapable. Uh, it, despite all of our technological advancement, I, it's, it's, the reality is I just don't think humanity's improved a lot in terms of our wisdom. Uh, we haven't gotten a whole lot smarter in general. We've just really turned up the volume is, is, what, I, is what I see around me. And if you were to survey everyone in this room, if we were to take time right now and pass out a piece of paper to everybody and say, what is the greatest problem facing the world today? We'd probably get 70 different answers because we all see it through the lens of our own perspective. And so whether it's racial injustice, whether it's socioeconomic disparity, or, or even just which team you're supposed to pull for on Saturday, or, or I guess there's a few of you who might care about Sunday football, I don't know. Um, bless your heart if you're one of them. Um, walking in our world today is, is basically like being attacked by a swarm of, of yellow jackets, is what it feels like. Um, and I, I, one time I was cutting a tree down in our backyard, and it fell down, and I got, you can, you, this is verifiable, okay? There were witnesses. I got stung by 17 yellow jackets at one time. My wife thought I was going to go into like anaphylactic shock and die. She didn't sleep the whole night. I actually slept pretty good because, you know, Benadryl. But anyway, that was... Uh, uh, it, that's what it feels like going through the world. Now, I was telling the group before this, like, I don't even know. It, we've reached the point as a culture that if I go into academy sports and buy a certain pair of shoes, somebody might get offended. I, I literally run the risk in this day that if I go and buy a certain brand, somebody's going to, I just can't believe, why don't you like policemen? Like, that's where we are as a culture, which is ridiculous, by the way, and I don't care what kind of shoes you buy. I never will care what brand of shoes you buy ever. And if I ever do, fire me, please. Hire somebody who will not care about that. So whatever it is, we just find ourselves in this constant state of division. And it's this reminder, this reality points us to the fact that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we feel that something has gone wrong in the world. That's what creates this tension in us. I know I'm not the only person who feels that. That like real angst in our lives that cries out that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And listen to me, Jesus understands that. He does. He understands that. He understands that that things are not the way they were meant to be because he was there at the beginning, right? 
Like he knows how it's supposed to be because he's the one who built it all. He's the one who made it all. Remember John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That means he was there in the beginning. And I don't mean that the, that the son of God was like sitting there watching daddy work. I mean, that's what my kids do. Like I could come and help me, and the four and a half year old comes, but he doesn't like really help. He's just kind of there while it's happened. Sometimes I think that's how we see Jesus in creation, like a toddler watching his daddy. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he was there. He was intimately involved in it. He put the pieces together and he didn't do it like we do with like raw material. He built it out of nothing. Out of nothing. He took nothing and made something. That's why God is the only one who ever truly creates anything. The second person of the Trinity was never a toddler, okay? He was there. He made it. And so he knows, he knows that something has gone wrong because he knows what it's supposed to be like. And that's what we see happening right here. Look at verses 37 and 30 through 39. On the last day of the feast, what John calls the, the great day, we're told that Jesus stood up and we're told that he cried out. And the, the inflection there is that he's shouting this. He is making this known. He's not just going, hey, if anybody's got some time, I'd love to tell you a little something over here. No, he is declaring this. He's saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Okay, now, now the Feast of Booths, we hadn't talked a whole lot about the, the history of that thing, so I'm going to give you the very short version. The Feast of Booths inclu- included several traditions, uh, even beyond the fact that they have effectively spent the week living in tents. And so if you're a parent, you're like, I, I don't know how they did it, right? And if you're a kid, you're going, this is awesome, right? The Feast of Booths is their favorite time of year. The most comparable thing to this is actually like Christmas season and our culture. The kids would have loved this time of year because everybody's celebrating, everybody's camping out and just having a big, big time, okay? One of the things that would happen every day during the feast is the crowds would gather together in the temple courts and the priests who were, who were serving that day, they would go with a golden pitcher, okay? And, and they would go to the pool of Siloam. You'll hear about that pool every once in a while when you read through the New Testament. They'd go to that pool and they'd dip some water out and they'd come back and they'd parade back into the temple. People would be shouting and banging stuff. They'd have a temple choir singing. It would, it would be allowed to be singing, uh, singing the Hallel Psalms, if you know what those are, the Psalms 113 through 118, they're singing them out. By the way, they have them memorized. So if, you, if you've ever been tempted to memorize scripture, probably a good thing. And they're singing them out. And the priest brings this golden pitcher full of water and he takes it and he dumps it on the altar. He pours it out as a sacrifice of thanksgiving, as a visual representation of their thankfulness to God for his provision. And so what they were doing in that ceremony is they're looking back to God's provision in the past, in the exodus of how God led them out and how he provided water for them out of a place where there should have been no water. They're looking to the present. The Feast of Booths had to do with the harvest season. They're celebrating the harvest. So it has to do with the present and that God has provided in the present. And it's looking forward to, okay, it's looking forward to God's future provision of the Messiah. And so it's this festival that looks, uh, it looks both, uh, it looks with thankfulness to the, in the present to the past for the future, okay? That's the idea there. It's this beautiful, beautiful celebration of these people. That's the Feast of Booths. And it was at that moment 
Okay, at that moment when this water is being poured out in front of them, that Jesus stood up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Isn't it interesting that at this, at this moment of celebration of God's provision, even abundance, it's at that moment that Jesus directs their attention to one of their most fundamental needs, that of thirst. Charles Spurgeon called thirst the absence of a necessary. I like that. That's probably why I just quoted him. But anyway, that probably didn't need to be said, all right? But it's called the absence of a necessary. This is a, a reminder of our insufficiency. It's a reminder that as created things, we're needy. That's what thirst tells us that we are dependent creatures, right? That, that without water, without fluid, we would cease to be alive. And so it's a reminder to us that we're needy, needy people. But Jesus isn't speaking here about physical thirst, is he? I mean, we, we, most of us have been churched enough that we know that when Jesus talks about thirst, he's probably not just talking about literal water, right? Like that's probably not what he's focusing on at that moment. And, and the fact that they're surrounded by pools of water, the fact that they've just taken a big pitcher of water out of it and dumped it on the altar probably means that these people are not physically thirsty at that moment. What he's doing here is he's linking this spiritual need with a physical necessity. He's talking about a, a soul thirst. A soul thirst. It's that spiritual thirst that we feel in our souls in response to the brokenness that we see all around us. It's a thirst for the, for the world to be made whole again, to be made right again. We might call it a thirst for Eden even. Like there's a trace residue in our soul of what it would have been like to be in the garden in perfect harmony with God, and our souls cry out for that, longing for it. And what Jesus is doing is he's offering to meet that need. He's offering to satisfy that thirst, and he's offering to satisfy it in abundance. He says, look at 38. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of what? Living water. And that should sound familiar to those of us who've been walking through the Gospel of John together. Because that phrase, living water, is exactly what he said to the woman at the well back in chapter 4. And what he said there of that well in Samaria, this real well that they really pulled water out of, what he said was, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And then he said this. He said that the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If we remember anything about that lady in chapter 4, we know that she'd been trying to satisfy the thirst of her soul by finding her identity, by finding her identity and her comfort in, in her relationships with men. It was in finding the right man. Everything, if, if, if she could find the right man, everything would be okay. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who had that idea, but, but that's, what, that's what she had. That if I can just find the right guy, then everything in my world will fall into place. Everything will be perfect if I can just meet Mr. Right. And yet she was thirsty. When we built our house, we had a well dug. That's where our water comes from, just like straight up out of the ground. You know, you drill a big hole, 
drop a pump, and that's where the water comes from, and that's what we drink all the time. And so uh, it was exciting because when the truck showed up, it showed up with this big, huge drill. I was fascinated by that, and, and so we're out there watching it. Uh, Caden was just a little little thing, and we're out there watching this humongous truck with a drill. And, I, and so before they get started, I went up to the guys. I said, you know, how do y'all know where to drill the hole? And the guy looked at me. Uh, as if I just asked the dumbest question ever, right? You know, you know that feeling if you've ever been in that position where they look at you with just absolute disdain in their eyes? And he goes, we know when we hit water. <laughs> I took like 12 steps back. Just, I'll just stay over here, out of your way, you know? I get it, I get it, yeah. Uh, Our Lady in Samaria had been just like those guys right there, man just digging wells, hoping to find something, hoping that this relationship would be the well that would satisfy me, hoping that this next guy, this next job, this next football season, this next kid's sport, this next whatever, would be the one thing that would fill me up. Just digging wells. That's what people tend to do. That's what we tend to do. We bounce from one thing to the next, one, one activity, one relationship, one cause, one whatever, just hoping that something in this world will fill the gap of eternity in our souls. We do it. That's why, we, that's why you see crazy fans fighting in the parking lot like after a, after a game. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, like, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking metaphorically. And I'm not talking about having an argument. I'm talking like probably end up in jail for the night after a football game that you didn't play in, right? They are legally allowed to hit one another. They're dressed for it. You're not allowed to do that. I'll never forget walking out of a football game one time as a father carrying a one-year-old is trying to take swing and punch a, a, a guy who he doesn't know, obviously, who pulls for the other team. And I'm thinking, Really? It's that bad. What just happened for the last three and a half hours means that much that you're going to fall down 3,000 steps out of williams Bryce Stadium with your one-year-old in your arms. Yeah, that's not, it's not about the game. It's not about that. A loss and a little gloating from the other team feels like a personal offense to those people because they're finding their identity in that. That's what that's about. I'm not just picking on sports fans, although they are easy, okay? We, we, we do this with all sorts of things because we are thirsty people. And what Jesus says to those who are thirsty, he says it very simply. He says, come to me and drink. And then he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's that there will be an abundance. It's that there will be an overflow. I don't know if y'all know where the name of this church came from. In fact, I don't know if we've ever talked about this up here, and this isn't in the notes, so it could go long here this morning. Sorry. But the name Rivercrest came from the fact that in 2015, the river here crested for the first time, and everybody went, well, that wasn't supposed to happen for a thousand years, right? Or 10,000 years, whatever ambiguous number they picked for the flood line, right? For insurance purposes. But anyway, the, the, the river crested, and so what a river does when it crests is it goes outside of its presumed border. It goes outside of the lines that it's told to play in. And so the River Crest, the reason we called this church River Crest is not because we thought we needed the name river in there somewhere. It's because it's a missional reality. This is what the church is meant to be. We're not meant to play just within the borders that our culture tells us. That We're meant to spill over into every avenue of our lives. 
That's what it means. And that's what Jesus says he's going to do in us, that he is going to crest. He's going to be a, he's going to fill us with a river of living water, a river of living water. That's what he's going to give to us. Now, we know he's not talking about water, right? What does John say? Look at that. Look again, back at 30, uh, 39. He says that uh, those, this is to those who believed in him, that it was uh, the Holy Spirit, right? That he's going to give his spirit. This is what John tells us. That this river of living water isn't just a river, but it's filled with the spirit. It's not a drop. It's not a drip. It's not just a, not just a little bit. It's not a trickle. Jesus calls it a river of living water for whoever believes. And so what that means when he says for whoever believes is that there is a division being created in and through this belief. Because twice, twice, just in those three verses, in 38 and 39, we see a distinction being made. In 38, is Jesus speaking and he identifies the recipients of the Spirit as whoever believes in me. And then in verse 39, John calls them those who believed in him. So that's one group, Right? It's one group. It's those who believe in Jesus. My son is uh, working on, this past week, was working on dividing fractions, um, which is just the worst task imaginable. It's dividing divisions, if you ever thought about that, it's the, which just makes my mind go to all kinds of places it shouldn't go. I, I, I don't even know how to comprehend it. I smiled and looked at his piece of paper and was like, man, I hope, good work. I have no idea if he was right or not. I'm going, this is why they invented calculators right here. This is precisely why those things exist. But he's doing it there on paper, and to his credit, he, he only cried like four times trying to get through that project. No, he made it through it all together. It was great. And uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was strong, right? In God's economy, the math is simple. There's two groups. There are those who believe, and there are those who do not believe. It's when people get involved that we get it all complicated. That's when we mess it all up. There are only two groups in the economy of heaven. There are those who believe and those who do not believe. And what we're talking about here is saving faith. We're talking about saving faith. That's what John means when he uses that word believe throughout his gospel. He's talking about trusting in Jesus Christ for your eternal life. That's what it means. It's what our catechism calls receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Now, the question for us is, what do we mean when we say the gospel? What do we mean? There's a couple of different, I'll give you three different ways. As I said, the first one's from Tim Keller. He says, it's the good news that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. That's a long, wordy one. You don't have to memorize that. Another commentator said, It's the news that God has entered the world in Jesus Christ to achieve a salvation that we could not achieve for ourselves. It's getting shorter, right? That's a gospel, and we could probably memorize that. If somebody said, what's the gospel? We could probably say that. Another way, it says that God himself has come to rescue and renew creation in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. All of those are legitimate ways to say that this is what the gospel is. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's, that's one way, but Jesus said it fairly succinctly back in chapter 3, didn't he? He did. He said, for God so loved the world that that he gave his only son, that whoever, guess what? 
believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, we don't have to look too far for the gospel. By the way, if you're in our community groups, uh, that's one of the questions for tonight. What is the gospel? I just gave you the cheat sheet right there. There's that idea of belief, though, in there. Do you see it? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what we see as the dividing line in God's view of humanity. And we need to be clear. It's not just belief. It's not just belief in like the abstract sense. I mean, people will tell you all the time, you've got to believe. You wait till November. And all the decorations come into Lowe's and Walmart. You're going to see that word, believe, probably in red and green, Okay believe. I have, I have like figurines that people in my time in the church have given me for Christmas season. They just say, believe. What my son said, sanctification, right? I mean, that's where we're at as a people. He says, Santa, Santa's coming, right? I mean, that's believe. Like, so you've got to believe. You just got to have faith. I'm pretty sure George Michael said something about that, right? You just got to have faith. Just, but faith in what? Faith in what? See, if belief and faith are not located in something. It's just emptiness. It's just words. You get to believe. That's what Jesus says. In fact, he's very specific, and we see it there in verse 43. He shows us that after everyone began to voice their opinions, it says that there was a division among the people. Now, why was there a division? Look at that. It's, a, it's, it's very specific. It's, we, can't, we can't miss it. We're told clearly there was a division among the people over him. Over him. Jesus is the point of division. He is what we might call the dividing river. Rick Phillips says what the continental divide is to the United States, Jesus Christ is the human race. You see, he's the point of division. He's that point where you're either on one side or you are on the other. And I know that in our modern day, we like to see Jesus as something for everyone, right? He's whatever you need him to be in whatever moment you find yourself in. That's why, this is why every high school football team in the country still prays the Lord's Prayer before a football game, because that's the magic. If we get Jesus in the locker room, we'll win the game. And, and, if, and if we're really applying for a job, I need you to pray, man. I need this one. If we really want that girl to like us, we start praying, or that guy, whatever. Jesus becomes just this ab abstract idea, but not, not in Scripture. You see, Jesus is very clear. You either take me or, or you take nothing. There's only two people in the economy of God. We see that here. He's the point of the division. They were divided over their opinion about who he is. The crowd could not dis- decide who he is. Is he the prophet? Is he this one who's going to come in the, in the likeness of Moses, in the spirit of Moses? Is he going to come and, and charge the gates of Rome and tell Caesar to let my people go? Really, that's what they wanted. That's all they wanted. Ride in on a big horse and tell them we're free. Is he the prophet? That's what they wanted. Or is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one who, as Isaiah said, would come and open the eyes of the blind, who would unstop the ears of the deaf, who would make the lame man walk? Is that, is that who he is? The, the religious leaders couldn't decide either. They had a hard time with this. Was he just another crazy, right? Was he one of those crazy guys who walks into town and people start falling around because he's a little bit charismatic and dynamic? Is that, is that what he is? Comes around for a couple of years, creates a little stir, and then vanishes from memory? The Pharisees thought he was a liar. You see that in there. 
just there to deceive the people. That basically, they thought he was the devil. That's what the deceiver is. They're basically calling him Satan. And so they sent, they sent some officers to arrest him. Back in 32, those officers were sent to arrest him. But, but evidently, they saw that something was different about this guy. There was something different about this one. They said, no one ever spoke like this man. And so we see divided opinions about who Jesus is. They couldn't figure out who he is, and they did not know what in the world to do with him. And this is the same tension that Jesus creates in the world today. These are still the questions that we are forced to deal with as people in this world. It's an, it's an unescapable question because Jesus is still the, the dividing river. He's still that point at which everything comes together. Some people think he's just a nice guy. Some people think he's a friend to talk to when you're in need, maybe a shoulder to cry on, one who would never do anything to offend us, of course. Some people, even like good church people, if they're honest, they see Jesus as a nuisance. I mean, they want to live their lives the way they want to live their lives. And some first century holy man isn't going to tell them what to do. We're, we're cool with Jesus as long as he doesn't tell us to or ask us to shift anything around in our lives. Sometimes we treat him like he's a new roommate moving into the apartment. Like we're welcome for him to come and help us pay the rent. Just don't make us rearrange the furniture. As long as he doesn't get in the way of our well digging, we'll be okay with him. Some of us don't want him to tell us why we're thirsty, and, and we don't want him to try and give us something to drink. Because eventually, if we dig long enough and hard enough, we'll hit water. In our foolishness, we just want him to hold our hand while we keep sucking on empty straws. And some of us do want to follow him. I, I want to say that. Some, I know that there are people here who want to follow him with all our hearts, at least in principle but we're really scared of what it'll cost us. We're really scared that we might be giving up too much to do it. But you see, Jesus does demand a response. And that response necessarily creates a division. And he said this would be the case. If you look over in Matthew 10, 34, you'll see that he says, do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, right? That's one of those we don't listen to a lot. I'm going to quote that one a whole lot. Jesus came to bring a sword. You know what swords do? I mean, on a, on a very base level, they divide things. Um, in this case, the division is between those who believe and those who do not believe. Jesus is the sword. He is the dividing river. I told you earlier that, uh, that to God, uh, God, that God's into simple math. Uh, there's two. He's not into complex divisions. He doesn't need all that. And it's true. For all the divisions in our world today, all the political strife, all the racial, gender, moral, and socioeconomic division around us, God simplifies things for us. And he doesn't deny those realities. He's not blind. And neither are we. We see the angst and the hurt caused by all the division around us. We feel that. I do. I know you do too. But what Jesus does is he simplifies the math for us. He says, if anyone thirsts, that's an underline, by the way. If you're an underliner in your Bible, that word anyone, it's a good one. If 
anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That means that while there are two people within the economy of God, there is no one off limits from being brought to the other side. All of those things, all those divisions we see in our world today, they're symptoms of the problem. They're little micro wells that the sin in our world creates. Little dried up streams that show the insatiable thirst of a fallen, broken world. Should we fight against racism? I think the answer is yes. By the way, I don't think that. That's an absolute yes. We should fight against that. Should we, should we work to tear down dividing walls within our community? Absolutely. We should work for those things. I think justice and righteousness being the foundation of God's throne mean that we should work against those things. But we better do it first by repenting of the walls of separation that our sin builds between us and God. One of the greatest problems in the church today is that we don't do enough repenting. We love to tell the world what's wrong with it. We hate to understand what's wrong with ourselves. We have to do it first by repenting of those walls that we have built between us and God. It better begin in our own hearts, both as individuals and as a church. Because the people of God in Christ, you and I, are meant to be a living parable of what it looks like to live in unity in Christ. We're to be a living, a breathing, a walking, talking picture of the hope of the gospel. Go back at verse 38 real quick with me. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you know where those rivers of living water are supposed to flow? I mean, rivers have to go somewhere, right? If a river doesn't move, it's not a river. It's a lake or a pond. They're supposed to go somewhere. Where does this river go? And I'm convinced that they flow from the heart and they flow into every avenue of our lives. And so when that happens, now my family doesn't have to become my identity now how well my son kicks a ball doesn't define who I am as a person. How well my daughter dances or kicks a ball or whatever doesn't define who I am as a, as a person. Now my, my identity isn't wrapped up in how many Instagram followers I have or, and I know this is a new one because I didn't know this existed until this week, or how long my Snapchat streaks are going because, because now none of that matters. And if you're like me and have no idea what that is, save your yourself the trouble. It's evil. Sorry. Uh, just stay away at all costs. Anyway, um, yeah. Now, my identity is not wrapped up in any of those things because they're all temporal and fading anyway. My identity isn't in my team's success or my climb up the ladder at work or whether or not I'm being heard. In Christ, my identity is in Him. And so what that means is now now, the questions that those Jews were asking are pretty pertinent to me. Is he the prophet? Yes, he is the prophet. He is the prophet who liberates me from the slavery of the traps of the world. Is he the Messiah? Yes, he is the Messiah. He comes and offers up the sacrifice of himself that I cannot afford. He's that priest. And, and he's also the king. He's the king who leads us in triumph, pointing us to the future glory when, and, and I know you'll know this, but try and hear this like, like you've never heard it, when he will wipe away every tear from the eyes and death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning 
nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Don't you ache for that? That's what the division in our world today should be pointing us to. It points us to the day when, when it all meets its end. It points us to the time when the present tension is seen as nothing more than a former thing that has passed away. And that's what the tension and the division in the world demands of the church. It demands a witness of the hope for the day to come. That's why we're here today. And I don't mean that's why we're here in this room, by the way. I mean, that's why you woke up this morning. That's why God didn't call you home in your sleep. That's why, Lord willing, you will wake up tomorrow. It's to point others to the dividing river. To point one another to Christ and to invite anyone you meet to come and join you on the side of the living. See, that's the hope of the gospel, is that everyone, anyone, might be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you don't give up on us. We thank you for the fact that you know us, you're not blind to everything that's happening around, you see us in the world in which we inhabit, and you know that it's broken. You know that things are not as they were meant to be. And you don't sit there impotent to do anything about it. God, I pray that you would use us as a tool in your hands to be a light for you to point others towards this hope that we have for a day when there will be no tears, there will be no angst, no anxiety about tomorrow, when things will be as they were meant to be. Lord, come and fill us up with your Spirit. Pour into us rivers of living water that we might spill over, that we might overflow. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.